Listener Hey, welcome to The Briefing. It is Wednesday, the 2nd of March. And in this episode, an Aussie guy who's been in the bunkers and on the road in Ukraine. Young people, old people, women, men, people that are trained soldiers, that are mechanics, that are teachers, they're all taking up arms and they're defending their country and they're digging in for the fight of their lives and they're giving the Russians the fight of their lives. His name's Misha Zelensky, and he's going to bring us some very direct observations and insights from Ukraine. First, Antoinette Latouf is here for the headlines, and you will have heard her on the briefing before, and you're going to hear her a lot more. She's stepping up her briefing duties, becoming a regular co-host. She's been a journo for 15 years. I think I started working with her around about that time, um, won a bunch of awards, and is soon putting out a book. Hello. Hey, Tom. I, I think you were excited to get rid of me all those years ago, Aunt Triple J, but I am <laughs> Back to haunt you. Better than ever. The rain bomb that has devastated southeast Queensland and northern New South Wales is headed south today. It is quite a large amount of the coast that could potentially see those like heavy falls as well. That's Grace Leg from the Bureau of Meteorology. Flood watches are current for a number of rivers around Sydney, including the Hawkesbury and the Nepean and the river's as far south as the Bega River. So a huge stretch of coast from Sydney south as this big weather system comes in from off the coast. And this is a one in a 1,000 year event. Uh, this event is unprecedented. Uh, what I do know um, is that uh, we have the best volunteers uh, any state could have on the ground providing support to our communities who are affected. That's New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet there. And overnight, the SES was called out to more than 800 jobs in New South Wales and carried out at least 80 flood rescues. And we've got to remember, that's on top of the 1,000 rescues that have already happened since the crisis began. Yeah, it's interesting hearing Dominic Perrottet say unprecedented and one in a thousand year event, but... There was a massive flood in Lismore, for example, in 2017. Brisbane copped a massive one in 2011. I feel like we're losing track on just how big these events are and what they really mean, particularly in this context of a rising climate. I think he's just preparing New South Wales residents for you know a, a really rough few days and to be prepared and to not get complacent. Well, speaking of being prepared, I'm, I'm finding this all very interesting why when we can see this weather coming that we can't better prepare. I feel like we're, we're not as prepared as we are for bushfires where we have a, a clearer warning system now after mm. Black Saturday. I feel like we're going to need to develop the same thing for floods. Yeah, well, have you done anything, any prep work? Because to, to be honest, in our house we, we have and we've checked on some elderly relatives. It's probably the first really? time that we've, we've ever prepared in this sort of way. I'm on top of a hill, thankfully, okay. and so far our house is holding up. But, yeah, if anyone that is listening knows me that needs help, Give me a call. And, and it is really serious because the death toll from the floods has risen to 10 after the body of a woman aged mm. in her 80s was found in a home in the New South Wales town of Lismore and the body of a 76-year-old man whose car was swept away was found at Glenesk in Queensland. So this is more than just your property being damaged yeah. and school being called off. Yeah, and lots of people, um, my partner and I know from the Northern Rivers, have had a hell of a time in the last few days and are still coping with it. In Queensland, just over the border as well, Still 144 schools that are closed, thousands of homes still inundated with water for much of the week. Brisbane, over the uh, three-day period, got two-thirds of its annual rainfall in three days. And what we've also been confirmed by the Bureau, this event, the amount of rainfall is bigger than 1974. That's Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk there. 
And sadly, it's not over yet. More rain is forecast for southeast Queensland later this week, right as the clean-up gets underway. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has tested positive for COVID. In a statement released last night, he said he took a PCR test after getting a fever yesterday. He said he started getting symptoms on Sunday and was taking regular rats that were testing negative, but the PCR test yesterday confirmed that he had it. So he'll now isolate for a week and says he'll continue to work from home throughout the ISO period. And some good news, the Queen is back at work hosting virtual conferences after recovering from COVID. Mm. The 95-year-old tested positive on February 20 and was forced to cancel a number of engagements. Okay, so she's bounced back after about two weeks. That sounds pretty good. Pretty yeah, happy about that. And faster than me. It took me about <laughs> three to four weeks to, to get better. She's got, you know, 50 odd years on me. So it's pretty impressive. But back to ScoMo, he did have a really big press conference yesterday. So mm. I'd be interested to see how that plays out and how many, you know, both journos and um, parliamentarians were exposed to him. Yeah, well, I guess they wouldn't be close contacts because it's got to be f- over four hours in a home-like setting, mm. I believe. But, yeah, potentially still creating risk there. He's done well not to get it all this time, considering how much he's been travelling mm-hmm. around. I think you could still work. just depends on how bad you get it and how many other family duties you've got. I know that I probably could have worked half days, but when you're looking after a sick family who also get mm. it, it's really hard. I'm wishing him a speedy recovery. Yeah. And Russia's issued a warning saying it plans to launch several strikes on security buildings in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. And satellite images have shown a 60-kilometre line of tanks rolling towards the Ukraine capital, fueling fears of a major escalation. So far, Russian forces have been aiming for the power station in Kiev, which has not yet been brought down. But a TV tower was hit earlier this morning, and, and that strike killed at least five people. And this is obviously Russia's attempts to cut off communication. Putin's been accused of committing war crimes after shelling residential areas in Kharkiv, potentially killing dozens of civilians, including children. It's after Ukraine's representative, Sergei Kislasar, read out a text message to the UN General Assembly. And that text message was allegedly sent from a Russian soldier's phone moments before he was killed. We were told that they would welcome us and they are falling under our armoured vehicles, throwing themselves under the wheels, not allowing us to pass. They call us fascist. Mama, this is so hard. Wow, interesting one there. That's a translation from SBS. It's understood that at least a million Ukrainians have fled their homes and more than 660,000 have crossed into neighbouring countries. So that's the humanitarian crisis unfolding already. And the Ukrainian president has officially signed an application for Ukraine's membership in the European Union. Maybe that's why the tanks are piling up. I'm sure that's not going down very well with the Russians. Well, that was definitely one of the concerns. Some good news if you're trying to buy a house. It seems that house prices might have finally cooled the first time in two years. So CoreLogic's monthly figures came out yesterday showing that Sydney actually fell by 0.1%, first dip since September 2020. Uh, Melbourne prices stayed level. Perth prices um, went up only 0.3 of a percent. Brisbane, Adelaide and Hobart rose by less than 1%. But regional prices continue to climb between 1% and 2% for the month. And yesterday, the Reserve Bank announced it was keeping the cash rate at the record low of 0.1%. And they cited the uncertainty in the Ukraine as a new factor in their consideration. Yeah, some of the big banks are still predicting a rate rise as soon as June this year. Um, Yeah, it's interesting to watch these house price numbers. I think most people expected that the growth that we saw last year 
couldn't continue forever and it was going to start to slow down as more stock came on the market, which is pretty much what we're seeing here. And Sydney and Melbourne, which went up by the most, uh, not not the most, some regional areas went crazy as well, like Byron. Mm. But yeah, they're starting to flatten out now. So it's going to be interesting to watch. This is even before the rate rises kick in. All right, in just a moment, Misha Zelensky on the ground in Ukraine. Now, Katrina, you've complained a lot about your Ford Focus on the podcast, but uh, get this. Imagine driving a 2012 (laughs) Kia hatchback through the conflict zone in Ukraine right now. Oh, that sounds crazy, but the Aussie you're about to meet has actually done just that. It took him 14 hours to get from Kiev to Lviv, and it involved going through many armed checkpoints. So we're talking about an Australian journalist called Misha Zelensky. Uh, He was in Kiev when it came under attack. And he took shelter in a bunker and ran into actor Sean Penn. So he's having some crazy adventures. Uh, he, then all got too dangerous. He decided to go back to Lviv. And he's there reporting for the Australian Financial Review. Such an interesting character. He's also been studying national security and geopolitics on a Fulbright scholarship in the US. And he also has Ukrainian Russian heritage. He speaks Russian. His grandparents fled the region to start a new life in Australia. So this all means that along with his stories on the road, he's got some very interesting insights on how this conflict is playing out. We spoke to him yesterday, so some of the -the up-to-the-minute analysis might have changed by the time you're hearing this. Misha, tell us about this journey from Kiev to Lviv. I more or less got the last chariot out of town, a white Kia from 2012 sedan, a lovely young medical student couple who were studying Kiev, two Swedes, and they took me. So they said, the only condition is you got to sit in the back seat with our Doberman. I was in, no problem. I would have sat anywhere, right? I would have strapped myself to the roof. If you went on Google Maps at the time and you had a look at the beginning of the invasion and as everyone started to basically flee their cities, the maps were red, right, for the satellite vision. Everything, you know, was deep crimson. Now, so basically a, a friend of mine from another newspaper had left they travelled six kilometres in 10 hours. So it was just crazy trying to get out. Now, for us, we've gone several days afterwards and so most of the people had gone. So the map said six hours. I was dubious. It ended up being 14. Part of the reason was one of the key bridges was blown. We had to go around that. We then had to get redirected around all sorts of closures that the military was locking down critical arterial roads. We drove straight past live mortar shelling, literally five metres from the side of the road loudest thing I've ever heard. Now, the scariest bit about that, other than they were firing live uh, munitions, was that the Russians would have been about five kilometres away firing back. There's active Russian units either side of this road. There's open source apps for people. You can sort of get a sense of where the wars are being fought and the battles are being fought. And you've got Russians here, we've got Russians there, we've got this narrow road. It's through country areas. The roads will be bad, the roads will be patchy. But if we get through, we're on our way to Lviv. I thought, yeah, let's go for it. But, you know, the family I'm with, they've got kids. They agreed. And so off we go. Now, like it felt like the plot out of a movie, right? And so <laughs> oddly enough, it sort of gave me confidence that it would work. But anyway, we got through and we make it to Lviv. We get here at 5 a.m., no accommodation, right? So we bang on the door of a school, which we were told had been converted into a refugee camp. They didn't want to let us in. Eventually, the couple that I was with, she could speak Polish, talks a guy around, he lets us in, we sleep on the floor of a school gym. The reports were that Russia was about to significantly start a really heavy bombing raid of Kiev to break the Ukrainian 
resistance, as they were saying. And so I'm texting the people that are reporting shelling to me, but also trying to tell them to leave. And they're like, I can't get out. And so, you know, you've got this sort of awful sense of guilt. You know, as you leave, you feel relief, but you feel guilt too. It's just heartbreaking, mate. Um, so, so what do you know about ter- how things are in Kiev now and how much that attack from the Russians has intensified? They still haven't taken the city, right? Now, a friend of mine, he's in the north of the city, about 10 kilometers north where I was. He's been reporting to me that the shelling's getting closer. He's words, he sent me a text saying the loudest shelling so far that his building actually shook from it. So the fighting is intense around Kiev. The fighting is also intense around Kharkiv, which is an eastern city. But the Russians have still not managed to take their cities. Now, every day, hour, as we approach now over a week since this invasion started, the pressure is building on Putin as well, right? He believed, and I'm sure he promised, a quick successful victory. I think they were planning for a quick decapitation of the Ukrainian government. I imagine they wanted to march Zelensky down the street on day one or day two, install a puppet government as what the intelligence was telling us, and Bob's your uncle, they've taken control of the country, and that hasn't happened. The Ukrainians have rallied to their president. He's dug in. He's gone from Jewish comedian, television comedian, to now sort of Churchillian wartime president. He's really risen to the occasion, and Ukrainians are responding to him, young people, old people, women, men, people that are trained soldiers, that are mechanics, that are teachers, they're all taking up arms and they're defending their country and they're digging in for the fight of their lives and they're giving the Russians the fight of their lives. And it's interesting, when I talk to Ukrainians, they say the Russians are here. Some of them are being told, you know, the reports are when Russian troops are either talking back home to people or talking to Ukrainians, they believe that they're going to be celebrated as sort of liberators. And so... There's a shock amongst the Russians that that's not the case, but also they're shocked at how hard the Ukrainians are fighting. And I think it is really lifting the spirits of the country, but it's lifting the spirits of the military as well. And how every day they hang on, I think, is an important thing because, yeah, they're not winning the war, but they're not losing the war. And if they're not losing the war, that's building pressure on the Russians and Vladimir Putin in particular. When you look around you and you see this optimism among Ukrainians, it is beautiful and it's certainly something that we would all love to believe in. But do you think that optimism is well-placed or is it kind of a romanticised sort of David Goliath type storyline that's that we're playing out here? Look, you know, we have to believe that they can hang on, right? Ultimately, what happens here matters everywhere. So we are talking about one particular country defending against one particular aggressor, but fundamentally this is a part of a bigger struggle. Uh, this is about a struggle now about the autocrats sort of trying to take apart democracies around the world and if we're going to allow autocracies just to start gobbling up democracies on their door, that's not good for Ukraine. It's not good for Australia either. We are a country of 25 million people, a democracy in an unstable region. We've got a very sort of belligerent government to our north and in Chinese Communist Party. And uh, if they start seeing that this is permissible, then, you know, what comes next from that? But the Ukrainians are fighting hard, but they need help. Sanctions are good, but they need weapons. The combination of sanctions and weaponry, what the Ukrainians can do by fighting hard is buy time for that pressure to build. So can they win this war on their own? If that's your question, the answer is no. But can the world collectively help them and build the pressure on Russia for them to capitulate? Absolutely. And what we don't know is how much pressure comes onto Putin from those that sit around him that benefit from this kleptocratic regime that he runs. Mm. The Russian oligarchs, they like having their kids go to school in 
Britain, in London, and they like to holiday in Saint-Tropez, right? So the schools in Moscow won't be as good as the schools in London. And Crimea in the summertime is not exactly the French Riviera, right? So they're going to be very unhappy that they're locked in Vladimir Putin's central panic room of a nation that he's created. I think the world is uniting against Putin. I think time is against him. But whether or not they can hang on by themselves, certainly not, but they need help. And if we give them that help, then I definitely give them the chance because their spirit is worth backing and betting on. So just on that, the subject of help, is your sense when you yeah. talk to people on the ground that they are happy with what the West is doing so far or, or do they want the West to do more? Well, they want more help, right? I mean, look at Zelensky. He said, I need weapons, not a riot, right, when they were talking about moving his government. So the Americans wanted to move the government to Lviv where I am. And he said, I'm staying in Kiev for the morale reasons. And I understand that. It would be like the British giving up London in wartime. So... My sources in the Ukrainian government are saying, kick him out of SWIFT. Well, that's somewhat happened, though not a lot. There are exclusions and carve-outs around that SWIFT expulsion, but nevertheless, it's a step forward. They're also saying to countries like Switzerland, don't let the Russians keep their money there. Freeze it. Swiss, for you know generations now, have been notoriously neutral, but you know, now's the time to get off the fence, right? They're asking for a no-fly zone. The term they're using on social media is give us safe skies. You know, they want a no-fly zone, at least over the western parts of Ukraine, to give them a chance because certainly at the moment, Russians have got the air superiority and so they are asking for a no-fly zone, but that would, of course, put NATO troops into a hot war with Russia, which has all sorts of implications for Article 5 of NATO and effectively risking World War III. So, but those are the asks on at the moment. Putin, as you say, may have miscalculated how far the West was willing to go on this. I guess ultimately, does that mean Ukraine potentially have a better chance of winning the war, if not this battle, or does it actually mean Putin just turns it up to 11? Well, we don't know that, right? I mean, that's the great unknown. Putin's made all sorts of vague threats about you know telling the West to stay out of it, otherwise you'll get the worst sort of uh, attack you've ever seen, which you know most people have interpreted to be nuclear warfare. Hopefully not, but obviously he's also escalated the alertness or the ready alert on his nuclear arsenal. Again, a bad sign. And Putin, frankly, has convinced himself, he's been marinating in his own narrative now for about 20 years about grievances with the West, historic grievances. You read uh, Barack Obama's book, you read the biography about Angela Merkel he basically, every time you meet with Putin, he just starts, he goes on a one or two hour monologue about the grievances he has with the West and Ukraine, et cetera, but it's more and more unhinged. So it's certainly concerning that you know, he could potentially dial it up to 11. You're already seeing increased shelling now of civilian buildings. I think at the beginning, it seemed that they were trying to be more precise in hitting military targets, government targets, critical infrastructure. It seems more indiscriminate now. This is a battle of wills now. It's a battle of wills between the Ukrainian people and the Russians. You know, you've got citizen soldiers here arming themselves with the weapons that they have. Vladimir Zelensky said, whoever wants a gun will get one. So gun shops basically sold out as they were arming themselves. But a semi-automatic weapon up against, you know, Russian heavy artillery is not really going to get the job done. So you need weapons supplied. Okay, we can't put boots on the ground, but we can certainly give them a better than even money chance of defending their home. 
That was Misha Zelensky, who's a Fulbright scholar freelancing for the AFR in Ukraine. He also has a podcast called Diplomates, where he talks diplomacy and mateship. Yeah, which I guess represents what he's like as a person. He just sounds so down to earth, but he really <laughs> knows his stuff on, you know, geopolitics, national security and this particular conflict, given his um, family history. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to see the way the world has responded to Putin. Initially, I, I got to say, I didn't have much faith that the sanctions would make much difference, but it seems the sort of coordinated actions have been a lot stronger. Not only the weapons supplier, but Germany changing their position there, but the Swiss bank also being a lot tougher on mm. on Russian oligarchs, plus the impact of the Swiss payment system and, and how quickly that's impacting the Russian economy. So it's having more impact than I thought it would. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've been talking about this, Tom. We, we want so much to be optimistic, but this, at the end of the day, is Putin that we're talking about here. Whatever solution, and let's hope we come to a solution, he still needs to save face in some way. So, uh, look, I, I want to be optimistic, but I think we also need to keep that in check. Yeah, 100%. It's easy to get swept up in the romance of the little guy fighting back against the bully. Russia is very powerful, has a very strong military, and as we discussed in yesterday's episode, nuclear capability. And tomorrow on The Briefing, we focus on the flooding in Brisbane at the moment. How could this happen, given the huge amount of lessons that were learned in 2011? Listener.